0: sanctions have been placed on Russia from different countries. We'll see aid being committed to by different countries within NATO to, to provide those um, either munitions, support in some way, monetary funding to Ukraine. And then within hours to days, you're starting to see either KillNet or Anonymous Sudan or other channels that are directly linked to KillNet or have a pledged um, Russia affiliation or support. They start popping up and saying, hey, we're going to start targeting specific organizations within those countries, um, government agencies, government entities, and then you see the DDoS attacks start to to spin up.
1: Welcome to another episode of Manian's Defenders Advantage podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. Today, joining me, I have Jose Nazario, Senior Technical Director here at Mandiant, Josh Pelletucci, Principal Analyst here at Mandiant, uh, and welcoming back guest Alden Wallstrom, also a Principal Analyst here at Mandiant Intel. Great to have you all here today. Thanks.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: So our topic of discussion today, um, we're going to talk about Russian threat activity and what we've seen, you know, particularly over the last year. Uh, but in particular, a subset of this, which has been what we've seen amongst hacktivist groups, purported pro-Russia hacktivist groups, and especially the DDoS activity that they have conducted. Uh, DDoS is a, is an area of cyber threat activity that I think security analysts and others in the cybersecurity space have kind of maybe mixed views on this. Some people don't take it as seriously, uh, although we recently saw, I think, one of the most impactful uh, DDoS attacks uh, just a couple months ago. Uh, But I think it's an interesting area to kind of track, particularly when looking at this larger set of what we've seen in cyberspace with respect to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Because I think it it allows us a window into some of how things are kind of moving and changing and what's driving uh, some of the operations that we've been seeing. So uh, we're going to dive into that today. But I think a good place to begin, Jose, you've had a lot of experience, you know, tracking uh, DDoS activity over the years, maybe just give us kind of a brief overview of how you've seen that progress in your career, um, some of the different types of threat actors that have leveraged that and kind of leaned this up to today.
2: Thanks. Uh, so yeah, as you mentioned, I've been tracking this for quite some time. I first started looking at DDoS in about 2000 or so. I was on a campus in grad school, got called in to do an IR, and it was one of those early prototype DDoS networks. And that actually led me into a career with a, a startup. At the time, it was a startup. Now, it's a pretty established company um, where I spent about a and a half years or so. And we were tracking global DDoS activity. Um, and I was able to you know, track down the various botnets and, and follow them. And around 2004, 2005 timeframe, I started seeing and, and sort of, you know, maybe it was because I was looking, but seeing the intersection of geopolitics and DDoS attacks and sort of went back um, and looked over some of my, the, the stuff I'd collected over the years, saw, we had seen some of it with, you know, um, South Korea, um, particularly around the Olympics, um, China, around the Hainan spying plane incident and things like that. And when I started looking at that time, like I said, in 2004, 2005, 2006 timeframe, I started seeing a lot of stuff and sort of the, well, you know, I commonly refer to as sort of the former Soviet Union, so the Eastern Europe, those countries and those relationships to Moscow in particular were sort of a hotbed of various activities. So they were, you know, seeing a lot of a lot of sort of these very interesting mixed sophistication DDoS attacks um, in Ukraine, which have been going on for a very long time, you know, sort of hitting outlets, news outlets in particular that were sort of critical of Moscow's position on various things. Um, we saw this in Chechnya, in Gushetia, um, the Baltics, and that's really sort of the prelude into 2007 and Estonia and then 2008, uh, Georgia. So, you know, we had been tracking it and, and, you know, like I said, it sort of got interested in sort of the intersection of geopolitics and cyber. And that was really sort of my big sort of opportunity, if you will, sort of just to track a lot of that. So I've been looking at this for well over 15 years in that space. And it's it's obviously sort of an interesting theater to look at. Um, sort of just watch whatever sort of Moscow complains about. And, you know, oftentimes you'll see related DDoS activity. We had seen, you know, a whole variety of DDoS attacks, including, you know, botnets um, sort of brought to bear some of varying sophistication. And then we'd always sort of spot these tools that people would put out, you know. LOIC was, you know, sort of a a canonical example from the Anonymous Collective, the low orbit ion cannon and and similar kinds of things. And we saw a very similar kind of things around the world. Uh, The idea was if you felt sympathetic to this cause, you could install it in your home computer. And as you go about your day, you're volunteering for the cause, if you will. Sometimes they're even more simple for users to actually employ and just load a web page and the JavaScript on the page will just keep reloading the target list. Other times they're way more sophisticated and you you have to install more specialized software and actually do some various things. And what's interesting about the evolution of that is Docker has sort of entered the picture, download this container and fire it up. And now, you know, very little, very easy to install, much easier than just a simple executable. But we do still do see sort of some of the, the tools and the web pages and the like over the years. Um, I took a significant break, if you will, sort of in the 2010s in this space. But obviously, when the Russia-Ukraine conflicts uh, started last year, you know, it's been going on for almost two years. Um Started of seeing DDoS attacks sort of in that space and began tracking that again. And, you know, same pattern uh, really as always. So it should note, you know, we do see a, you know, sort of a, a range of activities in this space, hack and leak operations, defacements and the like. I, because of, you know, sort of my expertise and my background track the DDoS activity more than these, these other kinds of activities, but we do see a lot of these other activities and I generally sort of Um, rely on folks like Alden and Josh for sort of the analysis. You know, sometimes it's pretty apparent that there's an intersection of criminal botnets and hacktivists or those kinds of things. And other times you sort of see a little more coordination or a little more sophistication to their operations. You know, like this probably isn't a run-of-the-mill kind of organization. I used to sort of track the intersection of cyber attacks and um, sort of the Russian youth groups like Nashi and Mesnia. I haven't been tracking that at this stage, um, so I've got no idea sort of Alden and Josh might have some insights there. But that was always another interesting connection um, for sort of a a way for Moscow and sort of people sympathetic to Moscow's position to sort of express their political opinions in this domain.
1: I think it's noteworthy there. You know, number one, DDoS actually as a tool, goes back quite some time, and you've seen a variety of threat actors, as you mentioned. Um, anonymous and Lulsec, and we've seen extortive threat actors that have leveraged it. But the politically motivated, the geopolitically motivated uh, usage of DDoS also has a long standing history that goes back to, to some of these campaigns you mentioned in track. And I think kind of where we're in, and Alden, when you were on previously, you know, you touched on some of the IO activity uh, that we've been seeing uh, related to the conflict at the very early outset of that. I think another piece of this that we're probably going to, you know, delve into today isn't just the the usage of DDoS activity, but it's also the hacktivist collectives and personas that we've seen emerge, especially over the last year. So I think to kind of, you know, segue us into that piece, maybe just kind of briefly give us an overview of how we've seen Russian threat activity, in some cases, you know, confirmed Russian uh, security services leverage personas um, and sort of the complexity that brings when we're looking at, okay, here are these purported groups, uh, some of which claim to be independent, you know, completely unaffiliated, some of which claim to be part of collectives, you know, that requires a little bit more analysis as to the actual makeup and motivation of these groups. But give us that sort of historical uh, perspective.
3: Yeah, so um, as Jose noted, you know, the range of groups that leverage hacktivist tactics is a full spectrum. And when it comes to pro-Russia hacktivist activity, Something that we have to keep in mind always to take a critical eye is that we know that uh, Russian government threat actors have a history of leveraging uh, hacktivist personas as a means to cover up their other cyber threat activity. And so the reasons that they use this are multiple, but primarily what they do is they use these, one, to support information operations components of their activity, piggybacking on on other um, intrusion activity that they may have conducted, and two, also to fabricate a means of plausible deni- deniability. So um, probably the best example of this, or at least the most well-known example of this, would be Guccifer 2.0 in 2016. A GRU persona stood up to leak documents and uh, stolen and forged documents from the Democratic National Committee seeking to influence the U.S. US 2016 elections. Um, but we have several examples of this, them doing this over time. So uh, in 2014, we saw cyber Berkut active targeting Ukraine among activity claimed by, by cyber Berkut was a targeting of the Ukrainian uh, Central Election Commission. And uh, let's see in 2015, there was the Cyber Caliphate, which was an allegedly pro-ISIS uh, hacktivist group. and they claim a defacement of a French television channel at the same time that we see the GRU compromising that network. So, it is an established and well-tread tactic that they use um, over time and that they continue to use to this day.
1: So that brings us all the way up, I guess, to, to this past year. Um, and we've seen, you know, quite a bit more uh, varied groups that have taken sort of pro-Russian stances and carried out a variety of different activity. Um some of which we've reported on that has pretty strong linkages to operations by security services. There's a blog, I think maybe from last year, about some of the uh, hacknet activity, where data that we saw being exfiltrated from uh, IR customers that were responding to a breach was showing up through hacknet um, distribution You know, within 24 hours. right? So examples like that, very clear linkages of at least coordination. Um, others less so, but Josh, I mean, maybe kind of touch on the the high points or notable points of of you know hacktivist activity, particularly the usage of, of DDoS from some of these pro Russian groups that we've seen over the last year, and some of the groups that we've seen emerge uh, through this.
0: Yeah, so I think that's that's something that's a little more unique to what we were able to to lend focus to. If you kind of like what you were referenced with Hacknet and Cyber Army of Russia Reborn, where we we were able to have that unique insight from our incident response missions uh, within Ukraine, where we were able to specifically see, hey, well, we're able to link this activist group, and they conducted wiper attacks, and within minutes to hours, we saw that data being leaked onto Telegram. So um, there were artifacts that were kind of in the background with that one, where we were able to, to pull those artifacts, compare what we saw on network um, through our incident response, and then link that to the to the actor, so and like you said, in those cases, we were able to to link that pretty heavily uh, to Sandworm and the operations that they were doing through that. But with the with the DDoS activity, is something that's a little bit different. So like Sovereign, Reborn, and Hacknet, we don't necessarily see them doing DDoS activity. Whereas the Killnet and the Killnet Collective um, that are kind of hit or miss, they they come and they go. There's new channels that get spun up, but they still are all under the the Killnet flag. They they're, they're a little bit different. So it's something. That we we haven't seen from Hacknet or, or Car or Cyber Army Russia Reborn that we call on that uh, we haven't seen that from that side of things. So with the with the DDoS it kind of flows in almost like a geopolitical circle if you will. So we'll see we'll see different things pop up in the news cycles where sanctions have been placed on Russia from different countries. We'll see aid being committed to by different countries within NATO to to provide those. Um, either munitions, support in some way, monetary funding to Ukraine. And then within hours to days, you're starting to see either KillNet or Anonymous Sudan or other channels that are directly linked to KillNet or have a pledged um, Russia affiliation or support. They start popping up and saying, hey, we're going to start targeting specific organizations within those countries, um, government agencies, government entities. And then you see the DDoS attacks start start to spin up. So I think the big difference though is over the last year um we started to see more of a change in capability for DDoS and that's where anonymous sudan comes in so up until anonymous sudan pledged to killnet they haven't really had killnet hasn't really had an effective DDoS attack we've seen we've seen them com- Make claims. We've kind of followed the check host claims that they posted on their Telegram channel, saying, "Hey, well, we're targeting airports. We pledge massive campaigns against the United States. Hey, we've targeted Lockheed Martin or other like other countries within the U.S. When we were pr- starting to provide aid um, to or ballistic missiles to to Ukraine, um, and that's the big difference, right? Is up until this point, like up until Anonymous Sudan joined, like they claimed the attacks, but there wasn't really." A, a large disruption that occurred. Um, so they they kind of targeted low-hanging fruit. Even the airports that they claimed to have had an effect on, it was just a random website that would go down, but there was no disruption to airflow, air traffic, anything in that nature. So it wasn't like anything significant that would cause a, a major disruption to transportation or anything like that. But then Anonymous Sudan comes in and all of a sudden you have a entity within... Killnet that actually has a competent botnet in some capacity, some way, they have a competent botnet where they were actually able to uh, target Microsoft. And that's where we actually had the first major disruption in, from what we've seen, at least the first major disruption um, through DDoS. Um, and since then they've continued to have multiple disruptions. I mean, the most recently they've, tar- they've targeted chat GPT and several other major major entities. So I think that's where we kind of start raising the question or raising the bar is how does a how does an entity that claims to be out of Sudan possess this type of capability
1: maybe go back a little bit and dwell on the the collective aspect of killnet because i think this is something that's important um, because there's a lot of different brands, as you mentioned, that have kind of been affiliated with with KillNet. They're always launching different collaborations with other groups. There, at one point, were launching a sort of a cyber mercenary component, sort of like a, a cyber version of the, the Wagner group. And some of these things seem to have kind of fizzled out, never really taken off. But others, as you note, with Anonymous Sudan, have been maybe more impactful and effective components of that collective.
0: We've actually seen several different attempts at a rebrand or... Other pushes spin up. So Black Skills for one was a incentive program that popped up through through Killnet where they were trying to launch a, a training cycle to train up individuals on different capabilities, and that ended up being a scam. Um, at least from what we've seen from leaks and doxes of, of specific personnel within Killnet, uh, there there's claims that that was that there were a lot of people that were scammed uh, in that. Uh, There was something else, like you said, that popped up with the the mercenary bit where they they claimed that they were... um, Was it Black Skills? Okay. All right. So Black Skills popped up, but then there was uh, another channel that was spun up. I think that was Black Skills.
3: So yeah, they've they've basically spun up multiple initiatives over time and they have this history, though, of sort of, you know, you kind of just look at it and say, let's wait and see, because really the follow-through Often is lacking but something interesting too that um, Josh was, was touching on with the structure element is that um, we've seen also a bit of a shift in in sort of how they've been structured. So initially early on um, when Kilnet enters the public consciousness, they have this sort of hierarchical structure with sort of groups that they command within um, and you see them sort of tasking them internally uh, live on telegram and then, More recently, what we've observed is a shift from those groups sort of fall into disuse and become inactive, and you have groups that have larger um, public profiles um, of their own and also seem to at least operate under their own initiative that are components of it. So Anonymous Sudan would be the, the best expression of that, where Anonymous Sudan um, at least nominally, maybe actually maintains a public profile of its own, but also is saying we're a part and component of KillNet.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, Alden. I think another thing too is specifically we're talking high profile is their their claims to be working with Rebel and several other high profile cyber criminals. And a lot of that just kind of seems to be spin. Uh, they, they actually spun up an entire Telegram channel saying, hey, it, this is a channel that is claiming to be rebel we pledge allegiance to kill net and then literally nothing ever came out of that um and that's just that's just one example of that but like you were saying with the the militaristic hierarchy they they literally we were we were in all the channels they they would say hey you have squad leaders and then there were squad members within each of those that were each squad was set up to perform different tasks some were ddos some were information operations they claimed that they had their own osint cell and we kind of saw that slowly fade away and like alden said it's it's at the point now where there's several high profile groups and within those it, it kind of seems that they they post the chekos claims or they they make claims for attacks but it there's never really anything that has been significant in regards to disruption except anonymous sudan and that's where we kind of see those but in regards to the other actors within Killnet, um kill milk let's if we want to talk about him and all, all of that so i think we've seen it what four three or four times now where he claims to be leaving and kind of just disappears into the background but he's still there you still see posts being popped up in private chats there's there's different people that are tagging him and things, and then give it a couple of weeks, and he's literally right back making claims, posting stuff, resharing or re reposting claims from the main kill net channels, and everything was going was going great until a couple of weeks ago when the whole Doc's kill net movement came out, and there was a couple of different Telegram channels that had people in it that were trying to leak as much data as they could possibly find on him and his girlfriend and other other pieces of his private life, um, and that may be the newest push as to why he's retiring. But it's it's one of those things where it's we see a lot of cyber criminals that are falling within the within the realm of Killnet. But I think when you're when you look through the weeds, I, I think the big thing is that there's possibly a tinge of Russian state communication or coordination in some capacity, and that's where you kind of have to start looking at the geopolitical side of things.
1: Let's shift a little bit to the tracking and the targeting that we've seen from groups like this. And Jose, you know, curious your thoughts on this, but obviously one of the things that's interesting about this as a set of cyber threat activity is so much of it goes on out in the open. Um, it goes on in these, these telegram channels where attacks are coordinated. And Josh, I think back to one of your point, it's been interesting to see, you know, public statements by, particular NATO uh, government that they're going to provide tanks or other munitions to the Ukrainians and then within 24 hours, you know, get targeted um, and and coordination being spun up to target via DDoS attacks by some of these groups. What's been the process like for kind of tracking this activity, both in terms of seeing that coordination, but then also trying to assess the actual impact on those targets, Uh, the impact of, you know, websites going down and in some cases, those being sustained or short-lived.
2: Over the years, the tracking has sort of changed a bit. Back in the old days, uh, spent a bunch of time tracking down every possible kind of DDoS botnet we could find and building C2 uh, trackers that would you know, impersonate the bots, log, get in, log of the commands, et cetera. And where I was, we actually had internet backbone telemetry as well. So we could look at all the different attacks that we were measuring at the net flow level and line those up when we could with the um the DDoS uh, botnet commands. And the overlap was you know not very great, um, uh, but it did give you sort of two different independent pieces of data. What's changed in the intervening time is you know the use of telegram and those announcements. So we're still tracking some C2s, we're tracking a bunch of telegram channels and those announcements. We don't have telemetry that we can use um here. So we can do some things on occasion, but we can't really sort of use it extensively like I, like I have in the past. Um, the So those two data sources, the uh, C2 commands, you know, hey, bots, attack this victim today, together with the uh, claims, again, as Josh noted, using the check host websites or similar kind of tools, this website is down as evidence of, the, of their successful attack come together uh, to provide sort of a, a decent picture in the Telegram posts, they'll typically, you know, as uh, as part of the claim, obviously tell you sort of, you know, who the victim was through the Checo site, sometimes provide a, a screenshot, but also sort of tell you why they did it, right? So, hey, you know, the, the Russophobes in this country or whatever are going to feel our wrath, et cetera. But what's really interesting is where we do have both visibility in the Telegram channels and the DDoS C2s is the overlap or the... the um, the real the real visibility you get in those two cases, right? So we, where we have visibility into things beyond just the Telegram claims, there's such a small fraction that actually get claimed, and they only do it when it's evidently successful. So they might strike a bunch of targets, fire off check hosts, but if they can't show you proof of you know harm or proof of, of, of uh, that the system is down, they're not going to tell you about it. Like we tried to do all these things, we failed. No one does that right? So it's human nature. You're only going to do it if you're successful. So we're seeing, you know, maybe a 20%, 25% success rate on sort of the best days. And then we do have sometimes visibility into, or we can line up sort of the attack and the claims, um, the attack traffic and the claims. So we can sometimes get visibility into protocols used or attack techniques used, infrastructure used. And that's where we start getting interesting insights into, well, These two different organizations made claims, but they're using the same infrastructure. So are they using, you know, are they one and the same or are they just using a third party service or what, you know, are they helping each other out or what's sort of the story there? And that's sort of an interesting angle that feeds into the analysts like Josh and Alden and others who can really sort of tease that apart and get some insights there. I focus mostly on the technical bits. I do some analysis, but really getting to work with folks like Alden and Josh really, you know, sort of, they, they're able to bring that level, level of professionalism that I don't have. I can bring you sort of the technical data, but again, sort of those insights get interesting.
1: What do you all make of the targeting that we've seen from them? So as you mentioned, I mean, some of this makes sense in that it's, you know, broadly aligned to going after NATO countries or others that are providing support to Ukraine, which, you know, makes sense if you're a pro-Russian uh, hacktivist collective. But I guess maybe more specifically into the types of organizations, right? We've seen airports, as you mentioned, be um, amongst the many different sectors that targeted. Those seems to be kind of singled out. Um, Hospitals as well. I know there was a lot of concern in in the healthcare community, um, you know, at one point because we were seeing a lot of that. And then more recently, we've seen them kind of pivot to target around the Israel-Hamas conflict. ChatGPT, you mentioned, uh, I think, as well, Josh. So what do you make of the actual like selection of targets and preferences that they may have for certain types of organizations to go after?
0: So I think the one of the big things when you're looking at targeting is remembering that at the end of the day, a lot of the actors or individuals that are operating within these channels are actually cybercriminals and i think in that regard a lot of the attacks that are occurring it's kind of lurking working through the smoke if you will to kind of like whittle down what targets are significant and what aren't um and in in a lot of instances you you see them kind of just like spouting off all these different targets where some of them just don't make sense um and other ones is pretty much if you if you're looking at ukraine specific targeting it kind of just seems that they kind of they almost go through go through an alphabetical list I think in one case we we saw killnet targeting US airports and if you look at the list of airports like if you just literally google US airports they went alphabetically down an entire list of, of US airports it was kind of funny when you actually put it together and saw what they were doing. Most of it wasn't successful in any capacity, but that it, it kind of seems that like you have to, you have to work through the weeds and kind of see what's significant. Now, one of the big things that, that comes out for Killnet specifically is they're targeting transportation. And when you, when you think about the transportation disruptions, you have to think about how, how is aid, military aid, or any, any other type of like food or other services that are being sent to Ukraine? How is that getting into Ukraine? It's either air or train. And when you look at the, the main targets that have been disrupted within at least the transportation side of things, those are the two major industries that are being targeted. So from that regard, like you kind of have to see what what is happening, what potential things are getting pushed into Ukraine and how they're happening. Um, now, with Anonymous Sudan, it I'm not going to lie, it kind of seems like their, their targets are, are targets of opportunity based on what current conflict is happening. So you kind of see them, hey, we're going to target Israel all of this is happening with Israel Hamas and then out of the blue, hey, we're going to target discord. Like, okay, well, what's that about? So it's, it's kind of like trying to figure out what, what the, what geopolitical things are happening, but then all uh, some of the targets just seem random. So it just, it, it's working your way through the noise. Like a lot of it seems like there's, there's noise, noise, noise all over the place. And then if you look at, like I said, the geopolitical side of things, you can kind of, some things start to fall in place where you can see the, the targets actually start to line up to what is actually happening in the in the world at this point? Uh,
3: I was just going to say, um, as the, the person who focuses on IO here, I would also underscore that um, a large component of the activity is focused on getting attention for their messaging, right? And they're sending a message either implicitly through their actions or the messaging that is attached to the claim around the attack itself. And so A one thread connecting through some of all of this sort of like churn of claims, right? Industries, key services, they're high profile industries. And when they choose to promote attacks as significant, they'll pay extra attention to organizations that will potentially have a bigger pull from a media perspective. So that could be a major uh, sort of global company or a government agency. And whether or not those attacks are successful, I would wager that they're also betting on the fact that. They are going to get potentially higher media attention in the markets they're targeting if they choose to at least spotlight organizations that they're attacking or claiming to attack that is going to be a better news story around the activity that they're conducting.
2: Just to piggyback on that, because I I, I wanted to make the same point. Thank you. To piggyback on that, I think, uh, remember, this isn't a monolith of sort of motivations, capabilities, et cetera. Some of the groups, I think, hit various targets because they want to show, um, hey, we really mean business. We're able to take down this massive um, site or this massive service that presumably is very well protected, very well resourced. We took it down. That was us. And so not just the visibility, but also a capability demonstration, right? So come to us if you want to sort of have this firepower at your disposal or what have you. It's not for lack of trying in some of the cases. You see you know other uh activists attempt to do some of these things and not succeed, but there are a couple of groups that do bring you know pretty good firepower to this to this fight, so when they hit uh these things that are globally visible and they take them down, that's kind of like a calling card like hey, that was us
0: yeah i think another another key thing too is out of all the noise that this side of things the Kina collective is making, it kind of just begs the question is are they are they specifically there to make noise make insane claims of targeting major high-scale organizations and entities while other groups are in the background actually doing work and leaking things on a telegram and I think that's kind of where like hacknet car and other entities that we've linked to the Russian state in some capacity they're still in the background they're quiet but they're still in the background actually leaking legitimate data that has been compromised from ukrainian organizations and they're still doing significant damage in regards to wipers and other things and that's still all active in the background so it's it's just kind of begs a question are i'm not saying that Killnet and hacknet are linked we have nothing to prove that and i I personally don't think so but it's it's one of those things where just like they there's so much noise happening and other other entities are just working in the background quietly but they're doing way more significant damage than these hacktivists have been doing at the forefront
1: i think that's something worth diving into we've kind of touched on it obviously while we've been talking about this but Some of the difficulties and challenges of doing attribution in this particular set of activity, it's very, very different, in in some respects, at least, with the more intrusion-based operations we see in the cybercrime or espionage side. What are some of the challenges, particularly with this particular problem, that you see that we have to kind of work through and untangle? There's certainly things to kind of leverage. I mean, maybe, you know, Jose, back to what you were saying about if we can see shared infrastructure being used, shared botnet being used. Um, by two seemingly different groups, maybe there's some evidence there of closer coordination, maybe not. Um, You know, if we see evidence of groups, specifically the ones that are actually involved in leaking data, again, if we can trace that back to an intrusion and breach, maybe there's some, you know, stronger links we can make there. Uh, But a lot of this can also be very kind of exists in the gray area of um, what that, you know, link is, maybe coordination, maybe a a front uh, going back to what you're saying, Alden. Um, but it's not clear often with with these groups, especially the ones that are just doing DDoS activities. So any thoughts you have around some of those challenges of attribution in this particular space?
2: So attribution is a, is a, certainly a hard problem. Um, I know enough to know that I don't have sort of the full qual- qualifications to do it you know, robustly. Um, what I like to do is I like to gather as much data for as long as I can to sort of understand what were they doing last week, who else have they hit, as, as was noted um, a little bit ago. Um, some of these groups will hit seemingly anything they can get their hands on. Other groups are a lot more disciplined and sort of very focused on things that track to geopolitical tensions, whether it be kinetic conflicts or diplomatic conflicts and the like. And so, being able to disambiguate that—well, this botnet was stood up or this attacker was stood up for this particular purpose—versus last week they were attacking, you know, online websites um, for clothes shopping or something like that. Well, that you know that's They've sort of turned their, their, their attacks in, in this domain, who knows when they'll turn them away again, but it's not a purpose-built group or, or, or resource or what have you. So that kind of information I think feeds, I hope, like I like to think it sort of feeds into the, the um, attribution question, together with uh, coordinations between between the different groups and the different targeting, um, larger geopolitical events, as well as sort of the, the day-to-day, right? Together with very small events, or I should say very um, fine-grained events, you know, we have seen situations where there have been attacks that were timed directly sort of, you know, really co- uh, closely coordinated with a state visit, um, a meeting, for example, not just bus stops, you know, around a um, a statement made by a foreign minister, for example, but rather, you know, very high-level visits, um, Within the hour, it starts, within the hour it stops, clearly there's some very strong coordination there as a means of getting that message out or um, communicating dissatisfaction or the like. That kind of data, you know, I try to make sure that we gather that so it can feed into additional analysis as opposed to just, well, we saw this, we don't know what else they were doing, or we don't have fine find great details.
0: Yeah, to, Hose- to Jose's point with that one, I think you and I first started seeing some of the data when we actually started Combining the data and looking at conferences that were across Europe, that was a little eye-opening because we were actually able to see a build-up the day before a specific NATO conference, through the conference, and then it ended the day the conference was complete. So, and that was that was multiple conferences that occurred in Europe uh, that were NATO-hosted throughout 2023. So, it was it was a little eye-opening for that one because we actually saw the lead-up all the way through the. conference uh, completion Um, another big thing with the the attribution is that from from mandian side of things we are very stringent when it comes to publicly putting attribution on a specific actor or activity set and i think that's that's something on our side that we're just we're very careful on and we we try not to jump to conclusions and that's like even at this point where we have Killnet and everything it's just like okay well we see them doing all this activity. We, we see the geopolitical side of things. We see them continually making claims and all of this other stuff, but we, we lend credence to any type of attribution with that. We're at this point we, we can kind of say with a little bit of uh, definitive, like confidence that we, we think that in some capacity the Russian state is, is an influence. Um, and that's based on specific geopolitical targeting based on, either sanctions putting in place against uh, Kaliningrad, for example, and everything that happened around that, all the way to sanctions against Russia itself or specific Russian assets, um, you, you kind of start to see different targets of opportunity pop up in those instances where it's like, okay, well, there that, that wouldn't be a PIR for a, a priority intelligence requirement for a, a hacktivist group unless there was some type of russian leadership or handling in the background saying hey hit these targets because they're doing this blah 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 so it it's a little bit easier from that side of things to look at it but if we're talking specific attribution to the major russian state actors we we haven't or we've held back from making any type of attribution claim unless we specifically have detailed intelligence stating hey we have these artifacts linking these specific instances to these specific actors at these specific times and we have the evidence that we can actually prove that.
2: Professor Jason Healy over at Columbia um, has got a really nice sort of 10 point spectrum on the attribution scale. So it's not as it's not sort of as as, as cut and dry as it's this particular agency and this particular government. There's a um on sort of the um closer to their you know okay with this end of the spectrum is everything from well they lack the controls to put an end to this, to they knowingly turn a blind eye to it, to um, they encourage this, they fund it, they direct it, they task it all the way up to, you know, um, they're sitting at a desk in the building kind of thing. That's important to keep in mind. I think as we talk about this kind of attribution, this attribution scale that he talks about, I think it came out about a decade ago, is really important to keep in mind here. And you know has an interesting corollary that came out uh, this earlier this month from the Red Cross, talking about the responsibility of states to um, keep non-combatants or people who are sort of not in uniform out of geopolitical hacktivism, because it, it really blurs the line in some really murky areas in, in the law of armed conflict. Here, you know, um, if cyber is an element of conflict um, and it falls under the laws of arm, the international laws of armed conflict. As a non state actor you know who's really jumping into the fray, um you know the government would stop me from picking up a rifle and flying you know to to a war zone to 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 do various things She doesn't have the same responsibility to to prevent me from um, installing some software and launching sympathetic attacks on my home machine
0: another another thing just to, like that helps us with tracking as well, and I'm not going to name specific channels that we're tracking in this one just because I don't feel like giving away some of this. But um Alden, like from an IO perspective, I think one of the big things we that kind of like catches our, our eye more than anything else is when certain channels are actually amplifying other channels of interest that we've start to see start to see different things aligned with Russian state interest. And that's something that also kind of pulls us in a little bit. To be able to say, hey, we need to start paying attention to this a little bit more. And we're actually able to start putting links together to, to build more of a case.
3: Yeah. Um, related to that, what I would say is, is that um, the sort of the Russian invasion is an interesting case study in, to, in some instances because we had this flurry of groups sort of emerge at the exact same time, sort of March, April. Like the Many of the groups that emerge in that moment are the ones that we're talking about today. There have been other ones that have come online since then, and there have been ones that have fallen sort of out of the fray. Um, but what's interesting is you have these groups and pre-existing hacktivist groups and personas that have sort of already been in the environment pre-dating the invasion, that there's a certain cohort of them that have risen to a level where they will interact with each other, claim joint operations, and promote the activity of one another. And that sort of interaction between groups of a certain caliber does draw our attention at a certain point to say, we should at least check in on this new group that we haven't heard before, because all of a sudden, they came out of nowhere. They're being promoted really quickly by a bunch of other actors. Um, And Anonymous Sudan is a great example of that, where they just popped up and almost immediately are getting attention from KillNet. And then weeks later, declare that they're part of it.
1: So as we're closing up what's been a very busy year for pro-Russian hacktivist groups, especially in the the DDoS space, uh, and going into 2024, what are each of your predictions on what we'll see more of, see less of, how this space will change?
2: I'm going to echo a little bit of what Alden said. There was, at the start of the the Russia-Ukraine conflict in 2022, an explosion of groups. It sort of hit a steady state at this point similar to the kinetic aspects and, the, and the, sort of the, the diplomatic, you know, conflict I anticipate sort of a stalemate continuing or sort of the status quo continuing. Um, no significant, I, I'm not, I think things are going to roughly stay the same where they are in this space. Obviously, you know, there could have, um, be a massive die off or a massive new entrance. If history is any guide, it's, it's, I think that phase is pretty much over and we're sort of just stuck with this as an aspect in this conflict right now.
0: I'll go ahead and jump in with this. So I I think we're like, like you said, Jose, I think we're status quo with, with where things are currently at. But I think one thing to definitely keep an eye on is funding for Ukraine and how they are progressing in the current war, if you will. So is the where's the counter is going? Um is Russia losing ground? Is Russia gaining ground? And I think you're going to start seeing a lot of Things start to happen if Ukraine gets the aid or continues to get the aid that they need and they begin starting starting to make uh, significant pushes uh, on their counteroffensive and start to, to take back more land. Um, I think that's something that you have to be paying attention to because there's going to be more things happening, more attacks in Ukraine, um, potentially more powerful DDoS attacks um, or wiper attacks in conjunction with leaks or, or other things. Um, Russia has done a really good point, uh, a really good point to now in regards to not crossing that line that would invoke um, Article 4 within NATO. And I think that's one of the things that we tried to push when we did our blog last year with Hacknet and Cyber Army of Russia Reborn was that um, everybody was just calling them hacktivists. There was no like push to link them to the Russian state. And I think that's something important to keep in mind is that we, we've we tried to change that narrative to to show that Russia is using the hacktivists in, in some capacity to, to push their own agenda, follow their priority intelligence requirements. And I, I think blending with where the war is at this point, that that could either increase or remain status quo based on where the war progresses from here.
3: And one thing that I would add as an outlook uh, is somewhat adjacent, because I would first of all second what Jose and Josh just said, is looking forward to other conflicts, other major events, potentially involving actors of other political alignments to the degree to which this activity Surrounding the Russian invasion in Ukraine with pro russia actors has been seen as successful or useful. In what ways, or will we have we um, seen hacktivist activity increasing or targeting those events as well? From the range of the full range of the spectrum, from likely independent actors to state adjacent or those affiliated with more sophisticated state backed actors
1: excellent points and i'm sure um you guys will be very busy going to uh 2024 this this activity shows no signs of slowing jose i think as a a point you made earlier also we have some pretty significant elections which we've always seen to be a magnet for ddos uh, and hack of this activity so um how that will play into things will be interesting to track but fantastic insights as always alden josh jose thank you for your time today And uh, enjoy the rest of uh, your day.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.